0: Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Welcome home, back to another warm embrace from the life-perpetuating organism that we call Where Hope Grows. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Welcome home, back to another warm embrace from the life-perpetuating organism that we call Where Hope Grows. Today, we're shifting the narrative around regenerative agriculture, and we're taking it from the rural farm ranch shedding and we're centralizing it. We're going back to the city. We're going back to an urban context and we're going to discuss the beautiful potential that each of us have. You don't have to own land to be a part of this movement. You don't have to own animals. You don't need to have a cowboy hat. You don't need to drive a diesel pickup truck. If regeneration is going to take place as a global movement, then it is our obligation, each of us, to participate or to co-create with Mother Nature in our own individual context. So if you live in an urban area, this episode is for you. If you have a backyard, if you have a little garden at home, if perhaps you have only a porch, you can grow food there. You can sequester carbon, you can create wildlife habitat, you can feed native animals You can improve the water cycle of your little microcosm of an ecosystem. And that, my friends, is the song that we are here to sing today. I have no other than Andy Marsh, who is a returning guest on this podcast. Andy Marsh is a soil health practitioner and science communicator on a mission to help others restore life and functionality to their soil systems. She is frequently found staring deep into the abyss, the microcosm of her microscope, in expressing her own innate, God-given potential that each of us has, Andy is phenomenal at the art of observation. She frequently assesses soils and compost for farmers, for ranchers, um, and then for people in the urban setting. And that's why I wanted to talk to Andy because she herself lives and practices in the city limits of Austin, Texas. And so, couldn't think of anyone better to have on the podcast. We're going to learn a lot and here we go. All right, Andy, I want to start here. So let's say hypothetically speaking, you don't have access to land. You don't have a background in agriculture. You've never studied farming or ranching or livestock, yet you have a call from the wild. You have a a deep yearning to connect in a deeper way with Mother Earth and you want to pursue a career or just pursue a passion or an interest or hobby in regenerative agriculture, but you live in the city, you live in an urban context. Where do you begin?
1: Yeah. When I was thinking about all the different ways that you could get involved in this movement, I was reminded of these three different types of stewardship. So there's, there's the doer, uh, and I'll go through each one of these, but there's the doer, the donors, and the practitioners. You said donors. Donors.
0: Wait, spell that.
1: D o n o r s, like the financial donors.
0: Oh, don't yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, so, so doers, donors, and practitioners, and the doers are generally like the volunteers, the people that show up to. Um, In this context, like maybe on-farm volunteering, maybe they volunteer for policy campaigns that are relevant to this movement, support a conference relevant relevant to this movement. You know, conferences usually require some amount of volunteers to help with registration or whatever it is. Um, Donors providing financial support, but also like purchasing power. So not just direct donations to different organizations, but choosing to purchase regenerative meat, for example, um, is is kind of the donor role. And then there's practitioners, which includes a lot of different people, it includes people like you who are directly ranching and on the land, it includes people like me who are more in the communication education space. It could also include um, researchers, policymakers, and this is where I think people can also be included day to day. Like this could include someone just implementing regenerative principles in their daily lives um, and, and soil health principles in whatever land they have access to, even if that's a potted plant or if it's a quarter acre lot. Um that that is an area where people probably aren't tapping into. They're probably contained. Um, they've contained their stewardship to the donor role using their purchasing power. I think that's where a lot of us start. And that's a great thing. That's a great place to start. But if we can start thinking about like, what are other ways that I can get involved in this movement?
0: Yeah. When you look at, um, I I think a lot lately about um, what's above, so is below, like this idea or this concept of like the macroscopic is representative of the microscopic or they're, mm-hmm. they're interchangeable. You obviously spend a lot of time looking under a microscope. Yeah. What, what do you like? What lessons are there or, um, kind of principles? Like if you're looking at soil, um, how is what's happening at the microscopic level representative of what's happening at the greater scale?
1: Definitely biodiversity. So if there's little biodiversity on the land there's very little biodiversity on the soil but what we can what's really important to realize is that if you inform the soil of more biodiversity then that can help the above ground experience more biodiversity Um, so often because we're we're so used to looking at things with our own eyes and that we can't see the below ground um we think that that is what we think the above ground is what like controls the health of the soil, but it's, it's not like they're interrelated, like one can affect the other. So it's a two-way street. And when I look at soils on the microscope and I see very little biodiversity, um, we can change that by affecting the microbes themselves, but also affect like changing the vegetation that's above ground. So it's kind of both, um, both. And then yeah what else do I what other insights do I find from soil under the microscope? I think just life in general, like it's it's always it's always a wonder, like when you put this thing that looks lifeless under the microscope and see how alive it really is. Um, and I always have this moment where like I'm wiping the slide clean. <laughs> And I'm I'm like wow that's so weird that I was just marveling at all of this microbial life and now I have to like clean the slide <laughs> no. and like hit, like kill them you know um, but like asteroid
0: hitting their, yeah, their community
1: yeah but that that just goes to show that like I have compassion for living things and that's a good thing so any chance I get I try to rinse uh, a slide into a potted plant or do do something like that um, which is you know these are small things but. Um, It represents the greater sense of connection that we have with other life forms.
0: I love that. Um, Have you ever, have you arrived at this level um, in your understanding or your appreciation for life at the microscopic level to where you're able to, you know, like say, for example, stand in any given field, eyes closed, maybe eyes open, but just stand there and perceive maybe energetically or with some other sense um, and make a prediction of what that field is going to look like under a microscope?
1: Yes. Yes, actually. Um, and I'm not even, I'm not nearly as experienced as m- many of my peers, but I've, lo- I feel like I've looked at enough context that i know what to expect a lot of the times from the above ground observations um now there is nuance there especially when you're in transition of going from something that was very conventionally managed and um transitioning we do look for that's that's really what the microscope is useful for is like those detailed nuances. Um, what I have found the microscope most useful for is actually evaluating compost. And now I'm getting to a point where I can ask enough questions about somebody's compost management or compost process, the feedstocks they put into it and how they managed it and get a general sense of whether or not it's going to look really vibrant and biodiverse or not.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so if... So, compost, maybe it's looking at compost or maybe it's looking at a field or a plot of land. What are the cues um, that give you confidence that things are moving in the right direction or that there's an underlying soil health that is thriving? And, like, what do you, how do you measure? Like, do you take off your shoes? Do you touch the soil? (laughs) Is it just visual, auditory smell? Like, what are you, how are you doing that?
1: Yeah. I'm still evolving in this and, um challenging myself to become less of a scientist and more in tune with the physical uh realm of just observation and yeah i think there's um you know the the smell is actually one of the things that i think you can train yourself over time to really <laughs> perceive in a more detailed way, like if you have, if you've ever heard about how people train to become like wine, you know how people like smell wine and they tell the the person who's making it to like. Yes. Change the levers. And all I'm that. OK
0: with saying that word wrong. Oh. I say it all the time.
1: Oh, what, you, what
0: is it? Sauvignon? Simo-
1: Sommelier. See, I, Sommelier. I just
0: set the foundation. Oh, of course,
1: Morgan would know. <laughs> so you right? could say it right. Okay. Sommelier. Um, yeah, I called it a wine person.
0: <laughs> I, if you, I, I was like, is she is she nervous to say the word because I'll screw it up?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I can see how it's spelled, but I could not <laughs> venture to say it. Yeah, so so in wine, they you can train your nose basically. Um, and to you and me, like all of the wine samples would probably smell the same, but to a sommelier, like they would know all of that those different nuances. And so you can kind of do the same thing with soil and compost. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's about observing um, changes in the plant type too can be really informative. So the types of plant species that are growing in a really disturbed landscape versus a healing landscape versus like a truly regenerating landscape, like you're moving along in succession. And I'm sure you've seen that a lot on your ranch um, and like, Plants do speak, you know uh, the different the different species that will arise are just like indirect response to however we're managing the land. So I think that's a really powerful one. and encourages me to keep getting better and better at uh, my plant species identification skills. You know, sure, yeah,
0: I'm sure you when you're like driving in rural areas, you're just like looking at landscape out the window. Yeah, oh, that guy's crushing it, or like that that farmer is. Doing it, you know, could be doing better. We don't want to say horrible. Well, well say yeah. improved. half
1: the time, you know, I'm looking at, <clears throat> I'm looking at dirt that's exposed or or stubble. And I just, I I try not to have judgment because I, I just think like, what, why? Like, why are we doing that? Why is that person specifically doing that? Um, because knowing what I know, like, you know, it can be really easy to be like, we should never do that and to to demonize it and villainize it but if if so many folks are managing land that way um like there's a reason for it and i think a lot of it does boil down to this cultural shift and so and that's transferable to how we manage lawns and yards too
0: yeah you wrote this one blog a long time ago many moons ago about um yeah that like perception of uh being mindful not to shame Others who um, maybe have practices such as tilling, for example. Right. I just thought that was like so enlightening because, yeah, sometimes like, I go there, too. And that's the wrong approach ener- energetically, because right. like, we want to change and we want to level up the whole agricultural system. When you come to someone um, with judgment and um, maybe eliciting a response of guilt or shame from them, it's like defense mode goes mm-hmm. up immediately, Perfect. shutting down. And not only shutting down, but doubling down what they're doing. And so it's like very divisive versus unifying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And as you were describing that dynamic between humans, I've also found myself doing that a lot myself in my immediate environment. So like in my yard, I'm like annoyed sometimes that it just doesn't, is it's not growing the things that I want it to grow or whatever, even if I seed something and it's like, it won't grow. I find myself coming to the environment and being like, why aren't you, why aren't you regenerating yourself? And it's really like responding, saying like, well, you're, you're not showing up (laughs) energetically in the ways that I need you to um, physically in the ways that I need you to like, I'm just doing my job here.
0: For sure. I, okay. I'm glad you transitioned to yards because. I really wanted to talk about the urban context and the urban setting and really like the catalyst. You did a, you did a, um, like a Substack post about this too, which was really cool. But the, the genesis for this conversation for me is like, we have all these people coming out to, to Rome Ranch, um, who, who get it. Like they love these principles of soil health. They want to co create with nature. They want to be a part of this. Um, but they're like, I don't have access to land like this, but what I do have is a yard. So, like, light bulb goes off in their head. Tell me, what can I do to regenerate my yard? Yeah, and that's just so cool to hear people say that. Um, and so like, you're—I couldn't think of someone better to have that conversation with. Um, but before we go into like that elevated, um, leveling up of what the potential of a urban landscape can look like, uh, can you just touch on maybe like, like just like that stereotypical. American dream, God bless USA, monoculture, yeah, coastal Bermuda. Yes. Um landscape. And like what does that look like to you? And then like what are some of like the unintended consequences that we don't even perceive?
1: Yeah. I know this really well just from personal experience. So I like I haven't done a lot of research on like how there's a lot of history there, right? Of how we've gotten to this point of just culturally like valuing grass lawns and um you know, mowing and all of that goes into the maintenance of it, irrigating it. Um, but firsthand, I, I live in a new development. So I I've seen the excavation process and then what happens when they bring in just a little bit of engineered topsoil and then lay down sod. And what I can gather is that like, it's at least in today's world, it's the easiest thing for a builder to do. Um, and thinking like a builder, right? Like it's all about efficiency and it's all about um, trying to cut uh, costs and um, speed up your timeline and et cetera. So it makes sense to me like why the SOD uh, is applied to these sites that have just been destroyed. (laughs) Um, Now, yeah, to paint a picture, like that's the scale of how many, I don't know if you got any stats on that, but like the scale of the amount of lawns we have in this country, like I've heard that the grass, lawn grass is the most irrigated quote unquote crop in America. And that's really wild. I mean, think about all the irrigated crops in agriculture uh, from orchards to corn and wheat and uh, even pasture land. Like a, a lot of these spaces are irrigated to grow our food. And yet we're using a lot of that water on, lawns and these manicured um, grasses that are doused with a lot of chemicals to keep them in this pristine green color and to keep them weed free. So um, those are the values seemingly of our culture in cities and uh, suburban areas is this kind of cookie cutter, aesthetically pleasing Allegedly.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's so strange. And I have to imagine you've gone on the same journey. And this is the power of the human mind. But I remember growing up, my grandpa was like, had the most beautiful lawn in all of Mm -hmm. the neighborhood. And and like every month, the group in Austin, so it was a pretty big deal, pretty big city, Austin, Texas. His house was like, yard of the month one one time. And it was like such perfectly groomed, manicured, monoculture. I mean, like just so far from the context of how that ecosystem was hewn. Um, But like that was a perceivable beauty that maybe it's uh, maybe we've been just educated or socialized to perceive. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like when you kind of like shift slowly out at that moment and see like something a little bit less manicured, a little bit more native, a little bit more chaotic and biodiverse. Like I remember thinking clearly the manicured lawn was more attractive aesthetically mm-hmm. but then also like this like if you see pictures you know there's screensavers on phones and computers yeah. where it's like this cornfield like in rolling hills one single species and it's like yeah that's kind of pretty
1: yeah there's something about it that's like i don't know there's something relaxing about it that you only have like this one thing to focus on and like the yeah. The diversity, the diversity feels chaotic sometimes to our mind. I think like our minds like long for simplicity in some ways and sure. maybe a- aesthetically like taking that in feels soothing in a way.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, are you, but I, I imagine like now I, 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 yeah, like such a shift, right. right? And so like, how do you, what do you perceive as beautiful now?
1: Oh, pollinators, <laughs> <laughs> flowers, Right. you know, I mean, I've, been letting our backyard I have an HOA of course so like the front yard I've I've been maintaining per Mm -hmm. per these standards but the backyard I've really just let as an exercise for myself just like let it go and I'll I'll mow when it like I have to I'm pretty exposed in the back so like I'll mow when I really need to keep it you know just contained a little bit but um it's an existential experience every time I mow because I see all of this life, like the amount of grasshoppers and pollinators from butterflies to moths and bees, like they're humming in our lawn because we're letting the weeds uh, flower. And um, I look over the fence and our neighbor's and this is no fault of theirs, you know, but they, they are letting the sod do sod things and they're letting their landscaping crew do landscaping things. And it's just dead, it's dead and dry and, um, there's no life there. So, uh, yeah, but I find, I find our yard like really beautiful, um, especially during certain times of years, uh, certain times of the year where there's just pollinators everywhere.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even... It's so cool that in your context, like your front yard's a little bit more tame and then your backyard's more wild. It's, yeah. it's like two control plots mm-hmm. and you perceive your backyard is just teeming with life and more abundant and more beautiful to your senses now and mine too. Mm-hmm. For sure, I've evolved that way. Um, but like when you're standing in your backyard versus spending time in your front yard, like is there perceivable differences and the noise, the mm-hmm. energy, just like the frequency or, or something that's like yeah. undetectable, hard to measure?
1: You know, I'll, I'll compare it to a lawn that does have like a lot of fertilizer and stuff being applied to it. Cause I don't partake in, in that at all. Like for the front yard, I just hand weed and, um, and hope for the best. Um, I, I implement a lot of regenerative practices, which I'm sure we'll get to as well. But <clears throat> when I'm in like a turf Fields, You know, whether it's like a golf course or a park or something like that, there's almost this, and it could, it could just be my bias. Right. But I honestly feel like I smell a chem, like there's a chemical smell sitting out picnicking in a lawn like that. Um, and that does not feel good, and I think that's been an impetus for a lot of homeowners to start transitioning away from these heavy chemical usage and more towards at least organic methods um, of fertilizing. And I think that's a good thing. But yeah, who wants to sit or or play or roll around in um, grass that's been you know doused with uh, a lot of these? fungicides pesticides herbicides which i think we've talked about like aside means to kill Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we just want we're trying to like live out there in these spaces and we want to connect with other living things um but we're just kind of killing everything for the sake of this grass
0: i think that's a good point so if you if you have kids or dogs or like care about yourself and um I I always kind of use that as like a maybe a yellow flag. If we're out at a public park Mm -hmm. and like I'm scanning the environment, kids have no shoes on and there's not a single wildflower or weed in sight, that's kind of like a warning sign that there's probably a lot of those side chemicals that have Mm -hmm. been sprayed. And then in that case, it's like, sorry, girls, put your shoes on. Like, I want to see that biodiversity because that's a, a signal that the landscape has not been poisoned.
1: Right. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good rule of thumb. So, if we talk about like
0: um kind of the conventional mindset on how we um manage our urban landscapes, uh doing a very uh, you know like um, culturally historically kind of relevant mm-hmm. to really tidy. Um and we we recognize that there's like unintended consequences you touched on like the the chemicals um, maybe that water use. And then you could also say things like, uh, like, I don't know, like, um, like the travesty, like bare soil, like broken water cycles, or just not infiltrating water with shallow roots. So there's all these bad, uh, unintended consequences, but then what about the potential of using artificial turf? Does that fix (laughs) everything? Have you seen that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Judgment free. Yeah. Um, I actually have a lot of well-meaning friends that ask me a lot about quote unquote, xeriscaping. And when I, when I ask them what they mean by xeriscaping and half the time it's called scaping, like, what do you mean by that? Because like, technically, if you were to ask like a horticulturalist, xeriscaping with an X is native plants and basically trying to, you know, plant landscapes that are going to survive your conditions with like Little to no irrigation uh, or protection from freeze or whatever else you know that that requires a lot of input from us, uh, and that uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, right? But when I ask people, "What do you mean by xeriscaping or zero scaping?" and they say, "You know, like I, I want to put down rocks so that I don't have to water my lawn, and I'm going to put drought tolerant plants," and I'm like, "We live in Central Texas; we don't live in a desert. Like it, it doesn't." Um, Yeah, it's going to help you cut down on irrigation, but it's not actually going to help the environment or your soil retain moisture. So there's a lot of different things we could be doing um, that align better with their desire than um, just covering. It's like the worst thing I think a homeowner could do aside from leaving soil entirely bare is to cover it with rocks, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Oh, man, I'm so glad you touched on that. Unless contextually... Your ecosystem is hewn from like a desert environment.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm thinking here in central Texas, that breaks my heart. But if I saw that somewhere in a more desert environment, it's no big deal because that's that is within the context of that space.
0: Yep, I'm so much more mindful of of the idea of landscapes where you just remove grass so you don't have to water and then you put in a bunch of rock. Like nature will always one of the principles is cover bare soil, you know, like when it's in the right context. And so, like, if I just see a perfectly zero escape yard, um, I think either that person is going out there every day and removing things by hand, unlikely, Mm -hmm. or they're just dousing it with chemicals again so it's like another yellow flag where a lot of like public spaces parks Mm -hmm. breweries even playgrounds Mm -hmm. when there's just a shit ton of rocks but there's no living organisms in the rocks yeah that's like stranger danger
1: yeah (laughs)
0: like (laughs) ask some questions
1: yeah for sure and the artificial turf too like is kind of got a movement um Yeah. I mean, I get that it doesn't require irrigation. So maybe like you could argue that it's better than your Bermuda grass, but I would argue that even your Bermuda grass is transpiring. Like it's, you know, photosynthesizing, it's, it's capable of feeding microbes. It's capable of supporting a, a soil food web. So I'd much rather have the Bermuda grass over artificial turf.
0: That's really cool. That's really good to hear. Um, And so let's get into maybe some like creative ideas on how listeners and people can implement some regenerative practices at home. And I know there's like, uh, I don't know how you think through this, but I'd be really curious um, to hear, like, where do you start? And then like, kind of like walk me through some things that people can do.
1: Yeah, I would start with mulch and Mulch is basically ground cover, which is one of the first soil health principles. So I, th- I, think, of, I think of applying soil health principles to this context. In fact, um, I've heard people adding context itself as one of the soil health principles. And I think that's a really, I think that's, I, I love that. Um, so to recap soil health principles, minimize disturbance. So that includes mechanical, chemical, physical disturbance. Keep soil covered. So that's where the mulching comes in. Uh, Keep a living root or active photosynthesis at at all times if possible. Uh, Increase biodiversity. Uh, Livestock integration, which we can get to uh, because the last one is context. So having a bison on your quarter acre lot probably isn't going to pan out very well. But there might be other ways that you can honor like the the rationale behind that principle, behind livestock integration, but within a yard. So maybe a good way to do this is to just kind of go through each one of those principles and I explain how I would do it in a yeah, yard.
0: I love it. Let's do it.
1: Okay. So minimizing disturbance, I that one seems pretty obvious. Like you're no longer going to be using all of those asides, right? Get rid of your pesticide responsibly. You got to go take this stuff to hazardous household waste. Um, no more pesticides, herbicides, or even synthetic fertilizers. All of those things really harm the soil life. And so you can't truly regenerate the soil um, using any of those. Um, any other mi- minimized disturbance? Are there any other ones? like?
0: Well, let me think about if someone is saying, um, well, I guess like uh mechanical disturbance. Would, mm-hmm. I mean, like uh, what about someone who's just like, I'm going to mow my grass every week. Even right. if it doesn't need it, even if it's not raining.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one because that creates quite a bit of compaction without people realizing it. And even just like walking on it on a certain area, like over and over again, I think the best way to do deal with that is to actually use some kind of stones for your feet to land on. And yeah, you're just sacrificing that area, but now you're not like impacting um, or potentially you're giving a designated walkway so that people aren't walking across the lawn in different ways all the time. Um, So designated pathway can be a helpful way to minimize overall uh, impact.
0: Sure. If you, okay, so if we're minimizing disturbance and you're also talking about removing chemical inputs, Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine, especially in like that transition between a system that's been artificially propped up with synthetic inputs, that there's going to be like a really weird, it's (laughs) not going to be like overnight, this beautiful lush yard. So two things that uh, are going to freak people out probably, and maybe you could give some some thoughts on like people Mm -hmm. are going to be maybe tolerant of the first dandelion that comes up Mm -hmm. once they understand like, hey serving a purpose. It's aesthetically pleasing when you change your perspective. Maybe a pollinator's friends with it. But (laughs) what do you do about someone who's like, I don't want mosquitoes. I don't want scorpions in my yard. Right. Uh, Chiggers, ticks, like the undesirable pests or insects.
1: Right. Okay. There's a few things that come to mind. Thing one is to encourage you to be more curious about those things. So there's actually a practice that I'd recommend if you want to get more into like the mindset shifts and that's like this is a challenge. Okay, this isn't, you know, this isn't uh this isn't necessarily beginner level observation. This is like a challenge if you if you're looking to challenge yourself like go observe a wasp nest every day for a week. Like just once a day, step out there, observe it, maybe check on it in the morning, afternoon and evening or an anthill or a weed, like pick something that like you don't like and try to sit with it and observe it because like with curiosity, that will change your relationship to that thing that you despise so much. And I'm not saying you're going to come to love it. Or whatever, but you'll at least have some respect for what's going on, right? And I think, I think in the case of the dandelion, um, that's that's an easy thing to get curious about. Like, no, that dandelion's not trying to get into your home or (laughs) hurt your kids or anything like that. Now, I understand, you know, the fears around more aggressive uh, insects or whatever getting into the home, but I would just challenge people to. Get more curious about their fear before they decide what to do about those risks
0: that is so well said and beautiful and and um one observation that i've i've made that's resonating with what you're saying is like wild boar wild pigs in general have just like such a negative connotation as being this horrible invasive species causing massive amounts of destruction but also like they suck. They're not even worth the bullet. Like you can't consume them. And so there's just a lot of like hate that goes into them. But when you, the first time you sit, if you're a hunter and you actually watch a drove, mm-hmm. the community, the family, the dynamics of those sentient beings interacting, it's like the sweetest, most beautiful thing. And it kind of melts your heart and, wow. and changes that relationship and the dynamics to, Hey, that is a sentient being, right? There is a community. Um they are an expression of life. Right. And so I think that's a really awesome thing that you touched on.
1: Yeah, that's really cool.
0: But what about, okay, so you're going to, okay, so like challenge yourself with some of these undesirable insects. Um, What about like, hey, you're no longer putting your NPK, like mm-hmm. chemical fertilizer on the lawn. I imagine there's some level of like underlying lack of biology. And so it's like you take away that input. What's going to happen like realistically? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's actually really important. And so when, when we do these transi- transitions in agriculture at larger scales, we really do need to taper off of those inputs and slowly be introducing biology, knowing that like, we'll probably kill a lot of the the new life that we're introducing to that environment. But slowly over time, if we keep doing both, um, we get to a point where you can wean off these chemical inputs, specifically the fertilizers. Um And so you could I just feel like that might be a little complicated for your average homeowner. So I I would encourage someone to at least cut back. Like consider how much you're using on the fertilizer. I I stand by don't use pesticides and herbicides, but or fungicides. Um but your fertilizers, if you feel uncomfortable about shocking the system and you're not gonna be able to handle your grass going from this unnatural green, frankly. to, to something either uh, deficient looking, um, it's not gonna die. It really shouldn't die as, because as we get through the other health principles, you are going to be responding and replacing those nutrients with something. Um, it just won't be this like immediate plant available nutrient. So cut back like at least half. And while you start introducing these other methods and and slowly get to the point where you're no longer using those inputs. And the the other thing I would say is maybe consider some of your neighbors who aren't using NPK and look at the color green of their grass and compare it to yours so that you know what an unnatural green looks like compared to what a reasonable like expectation is for how your lawn's going to. It's going to look beautiful. Um, it just won't look like maybe what you're used to based on all of pumping in all of those fertilizers.
0: Sure, it won't look like uh, like a uh, like photoshopped or yeah. have some kind of weird filter on it, yeah, like
1: high saturation.
0: Yes, yeah. I want to take a quick break here to give gratitude to the sponsor of this podcast, Force of Nature. They are the life sustaining source of energy that supports these conversations. Force of Nature sells the best meat on the planet for the planet and ships that life-affirming regenerative meat to the lower 48. God bless the USA. Force of Nature has offered a super generous discount code to listeners of this podcast. So head over to forceofnature.com and when you check out Type in WHG15 to get a whopping 15% off of your online order and have that regenerative meat that will nourish your body, nourish the land, nourish communities, all this amazing symbiotic work in the architecture of nature. Have it delivered to your door. It can't get any more convenient than that. So that's forceofnature.com. Check out code whg Fifteen, enjoy, my friends. Okay, so then it sounds like you're not even a fan of like uh, organic fertilizer or some kind of like more natural amendment. You're like, don't don't sweat that. I mean, is that is that what I'm hearing? I mean,
1: I. I think that there are some great organic amendments out there. One locally here in central Texas that I'd be happy to share with people is MicroLife. I think that they get what we're talking about, like this movement um, and this transition to uh, improving the biodiversity below and above ground and their products are capable of helping you in that transition. Um, they also happen to make a product that's like, Pelletized, which is what a lot of people are used to using, right, to spread fertilizer. So that can be an easier transition for folks. Um, but yeah, when it com- when it comes to herbicide and pesticide, um, I really lean. I I really the north star is to restore the ecosystem. So there's enough biodiversity to handle those pests um, when they do crop up um, or prevent pests from taking hold to begin with. So that's the North Star. Now, if when a pest crops up, if you want to reach for an organic solution, I think that's much better. That's a stepping stone. That's much better than uh, reaching for the the conventional pesticide. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So... That's minimizing disturbance, number one. Number one. Let's let's get to number two.
1: Okay, number two, keep soil covered. So that can be, you know, God bless these builders. They're keeping the soil covered by throwing some sod on there for us. um, And we can keep we can keep using turf in that way. It's keeping soil covered. I'm not um, suggesting everyone pull out their lawn to plant other plants because the the lawn is providing a soil cover. So that's that's one way to keep doing that in a yard for now. But it's also about um, spaces where you do have landscape beds or a tree, uh, keeping that pretty well mulched. Um, so a lot of people ask me like, when's the best time to mulch? Like they're overthinking mulching, they're overthinking, um, mulching materials. And so the, my advice is that mulch should, uh, there's no there's no right time of year necessarily. It just should always be mulched like, and it should be degrading. If it's not degrading, then that means like there's really no life there. So you need to up your level of um, introducing more mm-hmm. microbiology to the to the soil system, which we can get into. But um, you want to see it degrading, so that so you want to be topping it off like every couple of months um, in your landscape beds or around trees. Yeah.
0: So what's the, like how does the value of keeping your soil covered in the summer um compare to in in the winter like what are the benefits or what can you see side by side with bare mm. soil in each season?
1: Yeah. So so with my some of my neighbors um that don't keep up with their mulching practices th- what I see on their soils is like this hydrophobic layer. Um, And so when it rains, it actually is a lot harder for the uh, soil to absorb that water because um, all of the soil life that is exposed to the elements will end up just becoming like desiccated and it creates a hydrophobic layer so that's kind of like the science of it um it, when you're looking at bare soil it's not just that it's dry like sometimes it's actually waxy and uh, repelling water um so that can really make a big difference in your water uh, watering habits and uh, water bill
0: yeah that's but. insane i know exactly what you're talking about i've seen it and it's like you can have a shovel And go over that spot that you're talking about that's hydrophobic Mm -hmm. and it's like, good luck digging a hole and like a foot over where there's coverage, totally different physical response to a shovel in the ground. Mm -hmm. Like one has structure, one is um, perceivably living um, and then the other is just like concrete.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the soil crust or even like especially if you're irrigating that bare soil still a lot of times i'll see like algae and mosses growing Uh that's a natural thing that's (laughs) taking place but those can also when they dry out they they make it really waxy and hydrophobic yeah
0: the other really good thing about mulch let's be honest is that you get to get country strong (laughs) yeah i've seen i've seen you'd get like a truckload delivered in your driveway and i was like I know how she's going to spread oh, that mulch. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. And I also called in some friends for backup that time because I was like, the, I, I tried the first day to move as much mulch as I could. And I was like, I need backup. <laughs> I need friends. So we communed around it. <clears> and that's and that's how my friends really, like, they were thrilled that I called them to spend time that way, you know, to help to help me move mulch. It was like an exciting thing.
0: That's how you know if you have good friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's friends that want to move mulch. Yeah. Not friends that just want to go like be degenerates and And drink, go downtown yeah, and (laughs) get in trouble. Right. That's great. Um, okay. So uh, the other thing about mulch that kind of strikes me is, is relevant. Is like mulch is practically free. I mean, even Mm -hmm. seasonally, it's so like the cost of mulch, a lot of it's in the transportation to get to your house.
1: Right. Right. It it really is like the price per yard is really affordable. So uh, if you have a truck, like just go pick it up. Um, but otherwise, like you can get some delivered. And I just kind of stockpile sometimes on the side of my yard so that mm-hmm. I can top off. Hoarding. Um, yeah, like I hoard mulch. <laughs> um, and I, I use that to top off trees and like smaller beds and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can. Uh, the the other question was about like mulch materials. Like what what do I use to mulch? And that more comes up with small farmers. Like they they have... Hang ups about different mulch coming into the farm which I understand but for homeowners um, just an aged wood mulch something that's not dyed something that's mm, like
0: point. thank you even
1: even if it's a uh, hardwood mulch like things that had my antimicrobial properties like those those things are still okay i think um but if they're aged it can help to yes. um feed the soil quicker yeah.
0: yeah i've seen red mulch made out of rubber like oh my God. i don't even yeah. know there's tires they're grinding up right disgusting right
1: yeah so so i do have to be careful with mulch because i inherently just think like wood mulch i think of wood chips and stuff but there's so many th- things to choose from even just at a landscaping store. So definitely don't get anything synthetic. Um, and, and that's the thing. People people reach for that stuff because they're like, well, I don't actually want it breaking down. Like I want it to just keep covering the soil mm. and help retain moisture. But mulch is providing more than one service to us. It's providing the cover and retaining moisture, but it's also feeding the soil. We want it doing that. Yeah.
0: How do you tell if mulch is legit? <laughs> Um, you like to find that like white stuff growing around on yeah, it. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, if there's mycelium up in there, like that's cool. That's a good sign that it's breaking down. That biology is like in there. How uh, can
0: someone, what what does it look like? Like, what is like the visual cue? If you, if you go to like your, uh, mulch yard or your garden store and you're like mm-hmm. looking and sniffing around, like how can someone use their eyes or like, what does that mycelial network look like?
1: Yeah. I think if it's, well, the mycelium will look like, um, like threads almost. So think of think of like the smallest thread that you could get at like a sewing shop. Like it's gonna look like white kind of white or creamy colored typically um, and just be growing on little bits of the wood chips or or even in clumps sometimes. Um if you actually see mushrooms growing in it, like that's good. A lot of people, nice. homeowners, might freak out if they see mushrooms growing in their yard or mushrooms growing in a mulch pile that they are gonna and that's not a bad thing like most mushroom species are doing their job of just breaking down woody material and that's going to be a good thing cool yeah
0: i think I, what i love about these principles of soil health that you're going over here is like these this is the architecture of nature and covering your soil is like so obvious and natural settings that are right. functioning at a high level and it's like that's what the, that's why deciduous trees are losing leaves, you know? right? Like yes, heading yeah. into fall. and
1: Yeah. That's another good example of like how you can cover your soil is when the leaves fall, like either collect them and p- move them onto a landscape bed. You know, they, they will choke out grass. Right. And so you may want that aspect or you may still be in a phase where like, you're just, you're trying to keep your grass and you're trying to manage it regeneratively. In that case, like collect those leaves, but do not put them at the curbside. I'm I'm the weirdo that will steal it off your curbside <laughs> and bring it home so that I can add it to my compost pile or uh, or use it just directly as mulch. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Um, okay, keep soil covered.
1: Keep it covered. Number
0: three, living root. Living root year round.
1: Mm-hmm. So living root is also technically keeping soil covered. So um, you can have you can have you know maybe like a low growing almost like a cover crop, like, but you're not, it's not an agricultural context. So you might just call that something else, like a seasonal, like an annual that's like low growing um, to keep a space covered. But um, regardless, like you just want to maximize photosynthesis. So like, again, kind of going back to the builder grade landscape that's installed, they usually do like a couple of boxwoods. Um, They might throw in an invasive species inadvertently, you know, like whatever, um, and like these ornamental species and, uh, those that's, that's fine. They're all photosynthesizing. Maybe, have, maybe you can add that to your relationship, uh, you know, practice where you're sitting with an invasive species and trying to figure out how you feel about that. Um, but, Maybe consider adding more plants to that space, um, and really maximizing the amount of photosynthesis that's occurring there.
0: So, if like if you if you have like your turf grass, that's the majority of your lawn, mm-hmm. um, and you leave it in this like invasive, not invasive, but non-native species, that typically I feel like they're mostly like warm season dominant. Yeah. But like, what do you do in the in the winter if you want to like you have like all this dormant grass? So you don't have a, you have a root and it's just sleeping, but like you're not necessarily pumping carbon into the system.
1: Right. So I do think the best thing that you can do is add like a winter rye. So I love that. yeah, you, you'd have two grass species going at the same time and one goes dormant as the other one, um, you know, starts growing. What's annoying about that is that you can kind of mow year round, um, in that case, you know, to keep up with the HOA regulations or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think having a living root or uh, yeah, living root and photosynthesis happening is going to serve the soil, um it's a net positive um, where, you know, you're, you're reducing your mowing practices ideally. And I frankly don't irrigate my lawn very much, especially if you start um, improving the health of the soil, you, you'll find that you have, you don't have to irrigate it all that much. Um, So if things start going dormant in the middle of the summer when it's really, really hot and like, I don't want to run my (laughs) water all the time, I let it, I just let it do that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And if it's a native species, it just comes right back, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like dead, start over. right? Um, What I really like about uh, the winter rye suggestion, I mean, two things. A, it's extremely cheap for a seed. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how you spread it, but before we even get there i just think in general in the south winter grasses are so much more pleasant than summer grasses they really are yeah since like they're so soft like i just want to lay in mm-hmm. them i want to be, be grounded in them mm-hmm. and not a lot of people are planting them but i also feel like it's almost more of a favorable growing season mm-hmm.
1: like it is yeah
0: and so like we don't even perceive winter dormancy as an opportunity to to grow something green but yeah how right. do you how do you how do you even get started if say say you have like a pretty thick turf, grass. Mm-hmm. How do you intercede or introduce those annual seeds yeah, in the fall?
1: I think most people use a spreader um, to get like an even application. Um, I personally like just doing it by hand. I have a small enough front yard that I can just uh, do something like that by hand. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's like you probably already have the tools based on what you've been doing to start using rye seed.
0: So easy. Yeah. So you're literally just spreading. Yeah. So you're like doing it in five minutes. So.
1: Yeah. 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 Super easy.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there's no excuse. So those tiny little ryegrass seeds find their way to the soil, even if it's pretty thick or like, how does that, How? what's the life, the journey of that seed? Oh, the journey in the soil, of that seed. Yeah.
1: I mean, you would want to cut your, like once your Bermuda grass, if like for the initial seeding event, like you might want to cut your Bermuda grass pretty low. Um, and then I like to s- soak seeds like that, and in like a compost extract, and then apply it. So they're they're kind of inoculated. They already ha- they've already like come into contact with water, so they've kind of got these signals that it's time to germinate. Um, you can f- also water them in, which will help them move down to the contact of the soil, and yeah, give them give them a chance to germinate.
0: So cool. What about okay? So. I just feel like you have to do that. But what if you want to get fancy? What if you want to like <laughs> do uh, I don't know like more of a biodiverse mix? Mm-hmm. Yeah, grow, going into the winter, like what else could you maybe put in with the with the rye grass?
1: Yeah, I so I've been playing around with um, Native American Seed is like a, a brand that you can buy seeds from, and they have they have you know prairie grass seeds. And so if you if you were Able to do something like that, um, like I, I couldn't just willy-nilly do that in my front yard with my HOA rules, but I could have like a contained space that's like a little pocket prairie and do that as more of like a landscaped bed. Yeah. Um, so my plan is to just continue reclaiming more and more of my lawn to turn into like a more like a landscaped area. Yeah, and my HOA seems to be fine with that. Like if I, as long as it aesthetically it looks like it's being cared for. Right. Um they don't care if it's lawn or uh, or if it's flowering plants, you know. That's um, cool. Yeah.
0: What about all those like beautiful little pollinator friends that probably have resources in the in the warm season but maybe uh, are a little bit um hungrier in the winter dormancy? Like what mm. what can you do for those guys on the principle of like having a green
1: growing plant around? Right. Year-round? Right. I'm sure there's yeah, pollen uh flowers that are winter flowers this is where my breakdown in plant species um yeah. starts starts happening so yeah i'm definitely not an expert in like the even grass even the turf grass species that we've been talking about but i uh, biodiversity is the name of the game like if you get um a, a mix that has both cold cold weather plants and warm weather plants, then that'll ensure that you have at least something flowering year round. So like for, for us up until this most recent freeze, Lantana was still, still had lots of pollinators on it. um, And it was beautiful. And it was like one of the only things that was still flowering in the front for us, but all of the, all of the pollinators are on it. So it was one of the few things around.
0: Amazing. I mean, like I guess, yeah, the, the idea is it's all regionally contextual. Maybe what flowering plant will thrive in your zone, right. your growing zone. But the point is, like, there is going to be something. So just find out, look that up. Or if it's January or December or February and like you're just walking your dog or going to a park and you see some like really pretty flowers. Take note of what that is. Yeah. And maybe that's the species yeah. that you plant. Yeah,
1: that's a great idea. And, and on our walks, like in our neighborhood, on the areas that kind of border... The the spaces that haven't been excavated, I see what's growing there. Like, oh, verbena is doing really well here, and mm. I I might even take like a little verbena and bring it back home and just seed, you know, not seed my bed, but actually transplant one into yeah. my bed, and then cool. I have verbena growing because I know the, I know it grows well here. I know the pollinators are using it right down the street.
0: Yeah, it's free.
1: Yeah, it's free. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. <laughs> uh, okay, so you talked about biodiversity. We kind of already like going to number four,
1: right? Yeah, that's number four. Um. Okay, so livestock integration.
0: Wait, is... did we do biodiversity? We did green growing plant.
1: Oh, green. if there was anything okay, else true. you
0: wanted to skip to touch on, by oh, it, I, I didn't want to.
1: Oh yeah, we don't want to skip biodiversity. So we were talking about it, but um, yeah, I think I think uh, when we get to like this last one, context, just to skip around a little bit. You know, the context of a yard and what biodiversity looks like in a yard compared to pasture land, compared to a farm, like that's all going to look really different how you implement that. And I think adding ryegrass into your mix is a a good way to honor biodiversity um, within the context of like an American lawn, Mm. right? And. And then you just take that like one step further. So this is kind of going back to like not criticizing yourself for for not being able to implement this to perfection or to the um, most idealistic scenario, which would be to have a food forest in your backyard or your front yard, but to just take one win and then move on to the next one, right? So in incorporating rye grass is like a good thing that you could do to increase biodiversity, but then maybe like the next season you expand your landscape bed to incorporate even more native plant species there to support more pollinators year round, et cetera. Like it just kind of begets, uh, yeah, more and more, um, o- opportunities to introduce new plant species.
0: I love that. Biodiversity is the name of the game. Yeah. In general, right? Like even yeah. in our lives and, um, the food we consume or the information that we consume or the people that we hang out with and the ideas that we're exposed to just is so enriching mm-hmm. in every way. So it's like that principle is illustrated. It's put before us every day in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, um, when I think about biodiversity, I think about um, one thing that comes to mind is like the insect species. And then we kind of touched a little bit about like the undesirable insect species. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't know, uh, fire ants, red ants, black widows, scorpions. Those are the extreme examples. Uh I think those are reincarnated souls who are just (laughs) really naughty in their previous life, maybe.
1: Here to haunt us.
0: They're here to like learn a lesson. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But like in a functioning ecosystem, I've heard crazy stories like for every, you know, um, desirable one species, it could like be a predator and consume like up to fourteen hundred mm-hmm. undesirables. Like, mm-hmm. like the dynamics are just so incredible. But when we nuke the whole system, when we shut down the the biodiversity, yeah, it's like well, the most resilient critters are those undesirable, super resistant pests that come first, where we've already like eliminated all their apex predators,
1: right. Yeah, I mean, they have a role to play. Uh, This is how I think about pathogens in agriculture. It's like if if you're constantly disturbing the ecosystem, the pathogens are just doing pests and pathogens are just doing their job of taking down that plant and returning those that organic matter to the soil to build the conditions so that one day something could grow and there won't be pests and pathogens, right? So that's the only way that you build soil to get out of that transition phase and going back to Uh, these neighborhoods that are excavated from the beginning, even if you have a pretty mature neighborhood, that was a really big disturbance to that whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So like what we found is that there's just a crap ton of spiders and black widows included. And like, so many because they, there's, they, I assume, became like the apex predator in a lot of ways. Um, once all of the birds, because of the trees, were displaced, and lizards and frogs aren't able to live on these like scorched uh landscapes anymore. So, my goal is to create the conditions where like birds do want to hang out, uh, where lizards do want to hang out, frogs, like think about what might consume these. Pests. right? Yes.
0: That's awesome. So we talked about uh, like plant diversity. Um kind of how green-growing plants, you know, like we talked all about grasses, but like what other um categories of plants, uh, whether it's like a like a legume, like how does that work? Mm. Or, you know, like a broadleaf and root structures, like how does yeah. biodiversity of plant species <clears throat> impact the greater system?
1: Yeah. So this is where I really think of ecological succession. You know, you have these plants that Serve a role um, in like early succession where with a disturbed landscape you're going to have a lot of annual plants which are beautiful like you got lots of flowers in annual plants um, and they tend to reseed themselves and typically prolifically like that's how they're designed is to help cover a landscape really quickly after disturbance um, and then and then you'll transition more as you continue nurturing and as you continue introducing. And, more biodiversity to that landscape, the conditions will be right to grow like a more mid succession plant, like a perennial grass or a perennial, um, uh, forb, like a small plant. You know, uh, some of which flower most of the most of the year. Um, so I kind of that's how I think of plant species is like, is this an early succession plant? Is this a mid succession plant? Sometimes you'll see them growing side by side in a similar in the same soil. Um, So this thing, this isn't like in a vacuum, like it's not that you won't ever see mid succession plants next to early succession plants. Um, It's just kind of this theory to help guide us of like, uh, what are we doing to inform the soil of like what plants we want growing?
0: Love it. So um, let's go to my favorite. Number five.
1: Number five. Livestock integration.
0: Yeah, I say animal impact, baby. Yeah! Exclamation mark. Yeah. Like you said, that's kind of uh, sketchy to put uh, to realistically put a bison <laughs> in your yard. Yeah. So
1: not can, advisable.
0: But probably a, at one point, not in the distant past, 150 years ago, there might have been some kind of ruminant right. animal herd uh-huh. co-creating with that landscape, right? As a, as a keystone species. So, like, how do you how do you
1: incorporate? animal impact. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, like, what are the, what are the livestock doing on your land? Like, are they, are they introducing nutrients? What, what do they do?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think of them as cycling fertility mm-hmm. primarily. And then, uh, you know, like that little bit of biological disturbance that stimulates gr- plant growth, mm-hmm. um, and then spreading seeds, mm-hmm. I- increasing the biodiversity.
1: Yeah. That's all the stuff like we want to do in place of like in lieu of livestock, Mm -hmm. we want to take on that responsibility. And, you know, that, that could mean being as literal as going out and getting animal manure to introduce in some capacity, whether it's like a manure based compost or just manure that you're using in some capacity um, as part of your fertility program. Uh, But it also means um, it, aeration or grazing or, you know, cutting cutting back plants um, periodically, you know, I, there's this kind of uh, mistaken understanding that you, if you're just letting a plant do its thing um, and you're never pruning it, that that's like the most wild state that that plant could be in. And that's like the most ideal thing that you could be doing in a regenerative state of mind. But if you think about it, like plants are almost always feeding an herbivore of some kind. So pruning can be really h- helpful to the health of a plant um, and regenerating soil actually because it will strengthen that connection. Um, usually when you prune, there's like root yeah. stimulation. And so that feeds the underground too.
0: So the pruning pruning, pruning mimics the bite of the ruminant, but then what happens uh, when you over prune? Because we all know what right. happens when you over graze.
1: Right, yeah, yeah same idea. Like you don't want to cut cut a plant back you don't, you also don't want to cut a plant back during really stressful times so like thinking about this is something that i couldn't really know at not being a rancher you know on, on the land watching their habits every day but i'm guessing that um bison aren't you know grazing in the m- middle of the hottest time of day so like you probably don't want to be pruning during mm-hmm. the hottest time of day because that's going to really make that plant struggle to regenerate itself
0: yeah Good point. I like that. Um, let me ask you something. I feel like we're on the same wavelength about stuff, and I just want your unbiased opinion. But okay, so like when you think about uh, manure, like compost with manure in it, not all manure is created equal, but uh, are you pro neutral or anti biosolid, human biosolids?
1: Mm. I'm very, very skeptical of biosolids.
0: See, I knew we were on the same wavelength.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I, I won't say that it can't be done right, Um, but odds are, considering how messed up just our average industrial compost is, Mm. like I am not blindly going to trust anyone making a biosolid. compost yeah i think it i think it, i think it could be handled well but like we have a lot of reformation to go through with just our composting industry
0: mm-hmm. yeah do you have you ever looked so i guess uh for those that don't know biosolids are can you explain that but also have you looked at anything like that under a microscope
1: that's a good question i i don't think i have actually um no i've had some peers that have looked looked at it um but yeah it's to my understanding it's bio sludge which comes from like uh wastewater treatment uh, so it's it's human manure and waste that has to go somewhere, ends up being bio sludge at the water treatment facility. And then it's this, you know, really dense organic matter, like probably has a lot of carbon in it. And there's this market, you know, I, th- I think this has also gone throughout history, like people trying to figure out what to do with that waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, cause it could be so useful. Uh, of course, in modern times, the concerns are around all of the things that we intake, whether whether it's the pesticide-laden food that we're actually eating or the pharmaceuticals or whatever that end up in our waste. Totally, right. Um, and the concern about like, what, what does that mean if we're returning that stuff to the land? Um, but I think that there's ways to deal with it responsibly and potentially incorporate it into a regenerative model. I just don't think we're there yet.
0: Yeah, I think humans have the capacity to be, regenerative beings when they change their behavior, but kind of back to some of like our, some of the earlier conversation, like starting with adopting regenerative principles in your own life. If right now as a species, our waste, our manure is fucking toxic. Mm-hmm. That is probably a pretty uh, decent representation of our current state as regenerative beings or not. Yeah. Cause like every other species in a healthy, normal context, it's like that is just cycling fertility, going back Mm -hmm. and feeding biology. But yeah, I'm concerned about the same things you are, hormones, uh, forever chemicals. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all the other stuff that you know about under the microscope, nematodes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Talk about lack of biodiversity, compost, a lot of compost that we have access to as homeowners, especially. um, Well, even in farming and agriculture, it's Lacking biodiversity. So I'd say like the number one thing to be concerned with when you're transitioning away from these chemical heavy synthetic fertilizers and trying to find something that's going to replace that and do a really good job of helping the soil regenerate itself It's gonna. It boils down to finding really good quality compost and making sure that it's biologically active. And most of the compost that we would go buy at a big box store or purchase from a local composting facility is just not truly biodiverse compost. It's what I would call gom, ground up organic matter, Um, and it's not doing us many favors. So that's like the biggest advice that I would have for homeowners. Of finding a really good quality uh, compost.
0: I think that's important. And it's like resonating with me. And so how do you know, though, like, um, you know, if you're not Mm -hmm. Andy Marsh level skill set with the microscope, how do you know if your compost is legit or if it's just industrial greenwash, ground up organic?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a series of questions that you can ask a compost producer to really find out. So the questions that I would ask I like to start with a really technical question and I don't expect anyone to be able to answer it at a composting facility, but I think it's important to ask these questions because it's what's going to make them aware that there's a consumer base that's concerned with something as technical as a fungi to bacteria ratio, right? So that's something that a compost, I hope that in 10 years, every composter is at least aware that they should know what their fungi to bacteria ratio is like i hope that becomes a norm in the industry yeah um but that's not going to happen if consumers are just like blindly buying their product and not asking these types of questions so yeah even if the consumer doesn't really know what that means um which i talk a lot about that on my Substack is just kind of informing people like what these ratios mean and why you should ask people about them um That If you call and you ask them and they they don't even know what you're talking about, then that can be, to use your term, a yellow flag. And then you can ask a question like, well, tell me what feedstocks go into your compost. And if they say something like, well, a landscaping crews drop off their their land waste and we put it through a shredder and then we manage these piles, make sure they get up to regulation temp and then we move it out the door. Um, That is just ground up organic matter. It's not incubating any life. Sure. So that's the big difference. Um, and you don't need a microscope to really be able to know that ground up organic matter is going to be pretty bleak, like pretty like low biodiversity. It's mostly bacteria, which is a characteristic of really disturbed soils that we're trying to regenerate. So once you see that you're buying more bacteria-laden substrate and adding it to bacteria rich soil, the, it, stop, it stops making sense and you you can start asking these kinds of questions to uh, your compost producer.
0: So, so, I mean, just kind of like touching on the compost topic, I think it's, it's uh, anyone that has a home or even maybe be harder with an apartment, but like this is another opportunity where you can um, cycle nutrients from your own waste, like food yeah. scraps. And I guess uh, probably most people would be a little bit intimidated to mm-hmm. just... go out on a whim and start composting in their backyard or they wouldn't know where to begin or they would just do it uh, terribly wrong. So like, what is your advice to getting people started there?
1: Yeah. Well, let me say backyard composting, the odds of you doing better than what you're getting at an industrial compost are like pretty high. (laughs) So like if you just keep together like rotting food and you more or less have 50% browns and 50% greens... Like you're probably going to get a better product and more biodiverse compost than you are if you just buy from the, from the big guys. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You made it sound so simple. (laughs) Okay. So like 50% greens, 50% browns, just like high quality food waste. Um, But like, what, what do you do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to get, we're going to go deep on this at the conference, aren't we? We're going to, we're going to get our hands dirty. So it's more about i think i think with anything that you're starting new it's about convenience so that you actually show up and do the thing that you're responsible for and pay, just paying attention like observation so those are the the two things like early on in trying to establish this kind of like intimidating project that i would encourage you to just like consistently show up to the project to the pile the project site make sure that that site's like pretty convenient for you to visit like don't put it on the very back of your property um it really shouldn't smell or attract pests if you have like enough carbon in there so that's one thing to know is that like a lot of people get scared about like oh no like are there going to be rodents or am i going to attract and, and those are those are very real things that could happen but like get curious like it is it really the worst thing if you find a mouse in your compost pile, you know what I mean? Um, It's a totally natural thing to happen. Um, It doesn't mean that they're moving into your attic and like here to stay, right? And then it's also a signal to you that like you can start adding more quote unquote browns. I just use that term because you see that a lot in the composting, the homeowner composting world is browns and greens. And that generally refers to carbons and nitrogen rich. Inputs, um, so carbon-rich inputs are going to be like leaves, wood chips, paper, uh, cardboard, that, those kinds of things, um, and that that will generally keep pests away if you have like a layer of that, like pretty thick, over your rotting food. So that that can help minimize a lot of the intimidate intimidation factor. Um, Yeah. And just go out there and like poke around in it and get to know the pile. You don't have to worry. I just really don't encourage people to get like super scientific unless that's their thing. Like if they're, if they're an analytical type and they want to make a spreadsheet for their compost pile, like go for it. I'm one of those weirdos that likes to do that. Um, I will record the temperature and, you know, the moisture and stuff. I'm also doing like thermophilic composting, which is more technical. And, um, but average backyard composting, it's going to heat up. It's going to cool down. You're going to wet it. Like it's just, it's more of an art than a science. I, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So I just feel like you've gone over so much uh, potential in the urban setting, people with, with lawns or even, I mean, like thinking about outside the box, like how does, how do these principles that we talked about impact you, even if you just have like a balcony porch mm-hmm. and you can maybe grow some vegetables or a potted plant inside your house. Like mm-hmm. how can you think about what we talked about today and incorporate it into that single potted plant by your bed? That's cool stuff. But I guess to just kind of like summarize it, where do you begin? Like what what's the first step? Maybe if you're just like intimidated, like, oh, there's these six principles. Like mm-hmm. what, what to, Andy, tell me what to do first. I just need you to nudge me, shove me in the right direction to start.
1: Yeah. I, I actually wrote down easy and the next level, like as my two categories of where you could begin. So the easiest thing that you could start doing to just incorporate regenerative principles into your life, and these will carry over to practices that you try, like composting, like gardening, I would start with a sit spot practice. um, And that's something that Jared Holmes uh, introduced. Sounds like Uh, a Jared thing. Yeah. Yeah. Field biologist, Jared Holmes. uh, That's just sitting in the same spot every day. It can be, it can be as little as five minutes, but you're outside. It's in your like immediate surroundings. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to go to a park. Like you just, just sit in your yard, preferably like having contact with the ground. And get curious. And if you need more of a, a more structure than just like sitting there in your lawn, um, I get that. That's, that is even an intimidating thing to someone. Maybe pick one plant in your surroundings and like you go visit that plant every day and do that, do this as, you know, daily, but as long as you can, and that'll really inform like how to start being in your environment regularly, it will start feeling less intimidating to go outside and like interact with your own yard. Um, I think a lot of people outsource this stuff because it just feels uncomfortable. It feels like this responsibility that doesn't fit into the fabric of their busy lives. Um, And that's why you hire landscaping crews and stuff. But if you just, even if you're in that state, going out and visiting with that one dandelion, like every day can make a big difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's a wonderful uh start. Um last question, we just have been we started asking people this, but what is uh like where where does hope grow for you?
1: I, I like that. Hope grows for me at home in my daily life. I think you know, there's so much content out there and sources of inspiration and that can be a really beautiful thing. But if I'm if I'm not taking that in and then applying it just to my little single life, um, at the dinner table in my own environment surrounding my house, like, then I'm not part of the movement. So I think the hope really lives with the little changes that I get to make in my daily life and and looking back how those add up over time.
0: Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andy, is always amazing seeing you. Yeah. I hope I see you again before um, the conference, but yeah. if not, I am so going to be like front row paying attention to <laughs> the composting course that you are teaching. It's it's like one of the highlights of the event. So uh, I'm sure people are going to just be so fascinated by your work and uh, look you up after this episode. But thank you for all your um, grace and your giving nature for sitting with us today and and all the beautiful writing you're doing. And I encourage everyone to go and follow you on Substack.
1: Thank you. It's called Soil is Sexy. (laughs) That's a,
0: it is sexy. That's how you know you're you're my people.
1: Yeah. And we're having fun. Yeah,
0: Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. Yep. Okay. You know what is anti-sexy? Like a complete mood killer is dirt. I mean, just saying that is like the ultimate turnoff. And to be clear, when I say dirt, I'm talking about the lifeless, spiritless, desiccated version of what was once soil. But as nature has this brilliant capacity to rebuild her beauty, we can make soil sexy again. And that is such a high calling. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you are equipped with some foundational knowledge and some ideas to continue your journey and transforming your urban setting into a garden of Eden. So many thanks to Andy Marsh. She really does do a beautiful job with her newsletter. So I highly encourage you to follow her in her journey. We're gonna wrap this episode up with a actual factual real life review. This one is actually a review from a Force of Nature customer that I received, which is super cool. from Eamon, oh my gosh, the weirdest name ever. E-A-M-O-N, Eamon, Eamon. Okay, Eamon, what do you have to say? Says, tonight was the first time in almost three years that I've eaten meat. Happy to say it was Ancestral Blend Bison from you guys. I stopped eating meat due to big agriculture really making me angry on how we removed we've become from the process of honoring our land and its inhabitants, then I found you guys. Keep up the good work. We are relying on you to help right all our wrongs. Holy smokes. That is a beautiful review. We appreciate your love and your support, as well as you taking the time out of your busy day to send us some love. That's always welcome. Okay, now the last ritual is to end this episode with a beautiful, sweet little prayer of gratitude. The book is The Bramley Hedge, Series. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's certainly the cutest little kid's book ever. It's about these little mice critters that live in the woods. And in this particular story, Mrs. Apple, the mouse, married Dusty the mouse. And this was the blessing right before they were married. And it goes like this. And the name of the flowers in the fields, the stars in the sky, and the streams that flow down to the sea, and the mystery that breathes wonder into all these things. I pronounce you mouse and wife. Now let the dancing and feasting commence.